Welcome back to another week here on The Rep. Today we continue with our exploration of Paul's gospel logic in Romans chapter 1 as we have the previous couple of weeks. And we left off last week by explaining how the gospel is a divine saving power because on the basis of Romans 1.17, it reveals the righteousness of God in rescuing us. And so today, I want us to explore the second half of this verse to hopefully understand how that righteousness comes to us. But to do this, I think we need uh, to start in the Old Testament. And so if you're confused by me saying that, then just let me point out to you that the entire bedrock uh, the entire bedrock on what Paul is arguing here is based on a quotation from the Old Testament, which is why he says at the end of verse 17, as it is written. The quotation is actually from that short little book of Habakkuk. And so I think we need to understand something about Habakkuk and, and what's going on in Habakkuk's life before we can really grasp or at least begin to grasp this awesome truth that's being spoken in verse 17 of Romans 1. And so, let's rewind like 400, like 1400 years or so and dive into the world of Habakkuk. And so, here's what I know. The historical setting from which Habakkuk writes is, is really a tricky business to unpack. Primarily because there's just not much to tell about the man Habakkuk from the book itself except that he's simply a prophet and that he's given a burden. However, despite his elusiveness here, I think there are still some hints that help us to paint a picture of the audience, the setting, and the terrifying scene that he's painting in this short book. First, there is that reference to the raising up of the Chaldeans in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 6. This is a historical reference to people originally from Mesopotamia who had over time, risen to the top as a ruling class among the Babylonians. So here's the scoop on the Babylonians and their place in the Old Testament narrative. They are the vehicles of justice that God uses to punish Judah for their unrepentant sin. And in 597 B.C., the Babylonian army surrounds Jerusalem, lays a military siege, and captures the city. Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, installs a puppet king, Zedekiah, from which he collected tribute or monetary payments that were paid to more or less keep the peace with the threatening power or uh, an overlord. Uh, and he, he collects tribute from Zedekiah for several years. And so as the Old Testament story unfolds, we come to see that rebellion was actually secretly stirring in the heart of this puppet king, Zedekiah. However, the king of Babylon will snuff him out. And so in 586 B.C., just nearly 10 years later, the Babylonians surround Jerusalem for a second time. And this time it results in a devastating two-year siege that practically starves Jerusalem of all life. The historian who wrote the first and second uh, books of the Kings tells us really about these drastic circumstances. In 2 Kings 25.4, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. In the end, the walls of Jerusalem are breached, the Babylonians rush in, and Zedekiah is captured. His sons are slaughtered in front of him, and he's forced to watch it by his captors. 
they then gouge out his eyes and carry him away in chains to a Babylonian prison. So, where does Habakkuk come into play in the midst of that overarching grand narrative of the Old Testament? Well, I think we need to notice the verse previously mentioned, Habakkuk 1.6. It frames it saying, raising up the Chaldeans. And so it's as if their complete rise to power has not happened at the time of Habakkuk's prophecy, which most scholars actually date to around 605 to 608 B.C. However, that doesn't mean the world stage is silent. Indeed, a little world history review will reveal that God was already stirring up the Chaldeans, which would have given very legitimate concerns to Habakkuk in his lifetime concerning uh, the revelation that he received from God. And so here's a little bit of that world history. Prior to Babylon, Assyria was really the world dominance in the 8th century world. They're identified by Isaiah the prophet as the rod of Yahweh. And the Assyrians were the vehicles who ushered the northern kingdom of Israel, the other 11 tribes, into captivity and destruction in 722 B.C. Habakkuk seems to most likely find his place in the world history at the downfall of Assyria and at the uprising of Babylon at a time of shifting powers on the world stage. The shifting began, according to historians, really in 626 B.C. when Nabopolassar, a Chaldean, led a successful rebellion against the Assyrians. Nine years after, Nabopolassar extends his role as a menacing threat to a power to be reckoned with when he leads the Babylonians to capture those famous Assyrian cities of Ashur and Nineveh. That occurred in 612 B.C., uh, following this, he begins to work on his politics. And so Nabopolassar aligns himself with a group called the Medes. And in a joint effort, in an alliance, they essentially run the Assyrians out of their strongholds at the city of Haran and then set their sights on the only remaining Assyrian stronghold left, Carchemish. In 605, Babylon rushes into the city of Carchemish under the guidance of a gifted young an aspiring military superstar whom we know by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. The victory was decisive. Assyria was overthrown. Their Egyptian allies were running for the woods, and Babylon took its place as the new world power in the 7th century world. As one scholar has written regarding the prophet's perception of this new world power called the Babylonians, Babylon had begun to overwhelm the nations in a manner that the world had never seen before. Nothing could stand in their way as they sought universal domination. But who is Habakkuk? Well, Habakkuk is a man who wrestles with God about the evil that has been permitted to fester like an open wound in Judah, unpunished for centuries. But he's also a man who argues with God when God gives him an answer to his complaints in a way that really challenged his theological understanding. Particularly, the theological issue for Habakkuk is God's plans to use the Babylonians to punish Jerusalem. He frames his argument with God in this way at the latter part of chapter 1 in Habakkuk. Will you remain silent while the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? 
As the book unfolds, we learn that Habakkuk's idea of righteousness and God's idea of righteousness are not exactly the same. For Habakkuk, it is just simply unthinkable that God would allow pagan terrorists to conquer the people who had the laws, the temple, and the covenants. In Habakkuk's mind, the cure of a Babylonian invasion was worse than the Judean illness. So, and it's an interesting image, but Habakkuk says that near the end of chapter 1 that he is going to station himself like a watchman over Jerusalem and wait and look for God to give him an answer to his complaint. And God does give him an answer. And the way that God answers Habakkuk's complaint is both simple yet profound. And I really think it will help us to understand what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And so first, notice what the Lord tells to Habakkuk in chapter 2, verses 2 and 4. I'm going to read that in case you don't have your Bible open in front of you. It's Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. And the Lord answered me. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. God essentially tells Habakkuk two commands and then gives him that grand principle in verse 4. First, he commands him to take out his pen and start writing and make it plain so that everyone, even future generations, can read it. There's just a little bit of historical fun fact. The tablets of the day in Habakkuk's world were like the newspapers for us today. They were a popular means of public advertisement in that time period. You could literally envision Habakkuk pinning down these visions as quickly but as clearly as he can onto pieces of stone tablets and running to the town square to publish them for everyone to see, read, and understand. I think it would be interesting also to point out here that there are some overtones, it seems, to Mosaic traditions as well in uh, commanding Habakkuk to write down this public publication. So consider that Moses also was instructed to write down the words from God that framed the entire framework of the Old Testament. I love what one Jewish rabbi says about this thought. Moses gave Israel 613 commandments. David reduced them to 11, Micah to 3, Isaiah to 2, but Habakkuk to 1. The righteous shall live by his faith. Now, why was Habakkuk to write this down? Well, verse 3 tells us, and I think what verse 3 is saying is so that they wouldn't forget it. Listen, God doesn't get in a rush with things. That's a lesson that I think we would all do well to learn today. God doesn't get in a rush, but His ways are sure, and His purposes always prevail. Listen to what He says again in verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The Hebrew word here for hasten is the Hebrew word puak and is a verb that literally means to pant for or to puff at. 
It's the image of a panting for the end here that I think is particularly vivid. The implication is that the prophetic vision that has been given to Habakkuk has its own inner yearning to be fulfilled. The word itself is panting for its fulfillment like a thirsty deer pants for water. God is more eager than Habakkuk to see the fulfillment of his word. He is passionately committed to fulfilling it. And yet, if we're being honest, that can be difficult to digest from time to time, can it? I love what David Pryor says in his thoughts, particularly in regard to Habakkuk chapter 2. There are times in our life when every scrap of theology we possess suggests that God ought to act, but still nothing appears to happen. So the revelation given in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 that's being quoted by Paul in Romans 1.17, that revelation is given in answer to that tension that we ought to feel when reading Habakkuk's short but powerful book. Here's what I mean. The remainder of the book of Habakkuk unpacks how God will serve the Chaldeans' justice. Their evilness will not escape the judgment of God. And so Habakkuk, while God brings punishment on Judah, needs to learn the rule of God that the mark of the righteous is not books, rules, or even temples. The mark of the righteous is the one who lives by faith. The one who exists and walks through each day with an attitude that is dependent upon God and not upon things within themselves or in this world. It's the attitude of the person who walks with God even when they don't understand what God is doing. It's not a one-time decision at the altar after 20 verses of amazing grace. It's an attitude of life that is proven by walking with God through the trials, trusting Him that His revealed Word and His purposes will, are true and will prevail and will come to pass. And I think that is what Paul is meaning when he uses that interesting phrase in Romans 1, 17, from faith for faith, and says, in effect, just like Habakkuk said, the righteous shall live by faith. So here's what I mean. Paul has been rejoicing over this explosive life-saving power embedded in the gospel message. It is a divinely packed salvation with power because it reveals Christ is our champion who gives us a righteous standing before God. We depend on God to save us, and that is the from faith part. That righteous standing before God that we possess in Christ doesn't come to us by anything we do or have done but by depending wholly and totally and completely upon Christ. The for faith part, I think, leads me to think that this dependence is not confined to that 20-second experience. It is an attitude of life that defines our daily lives. This salvation begins and ends with faith in Christ. And hear me at these closing thoughts. It's not that you trusted Christ yesterday, but try to make yourself righteous before God today. It's not that your failures from yesterday mean that you must work to regain your previous righteous place. It means that believing in Christ, by believing in Christ, you are saved from beginning to end through faith, dependence on Him. That's some good news, ain't it? It's just like Habakkuk said. 
the righteous shall live by faith. Have a great rest of the week. I'll see you next time. Blessings.